welcome back everyone. It's good to be recording again. It's been a little while, but I think it's a sort of natural break here and we can think about going forward here as season two. Um, the podcasts I did before were really laying out basis and fundamentals of, <clears throat> of, of how I think about regenerative agriculture. And I think of a, it was a very broad sort of foundation um, that can be used quite well as a springboard. And I would like to maybe move on from here and delve into to topics and issues maybe a little more deeply and maybe a little bit more narrow focus, but be able to refer back to a lot of, you know, sort of principles and ideas that I, I laid forth in season one. But before I get into that, I have been very busy, not just with the farm, but I've also been writing a lot. And if you are someone who enjoys that type of information of, of word versus just listening, maybe you'd be interested in that. I've been writing on a platform called Medium, medium.com. And my handle is Farmer Sledge. I've uh, been writing quite a lot, actually. If you haven't gone there, I think there's a page on our website on the weathertopfarm.com. There's a page called Farmer Sledge, and it has some links. I don't think it has all the links yet to all my articles, but I start out with a couple on uh, one called Devastating Omission that got a fair amount of traction. Uh, it's about soil and animal husbandry. Um, there's one on Beyond Mitigation, and then I have a series called Allopathic Environmentalism. They're a little bit long, but if you're into a little bit more depth, I try to get some resources in there and, and make it a little bit more, I don't know, official is the word, but maybe a little more rigor academically rigorous there. Um, so if you're interested, I think you can just sign up for Medium, and, and even if you're not a paying member, you can read three articles a month for free or something like that. Yeah, so if you're interested in that. And I also want to make sure people know that um, I'm not very good at the social media thing, but um, make sure you know I am trying to post some stuff on Instagram. Again, that's Farmer Sledge. And I have, lo and behold, I have started a Twitter account, which I'm really bad at, but it's also Farmer Sledge. And you can follow me there. Um, no promises that anything... Uh, wonderful and great there, but I do have the links to, um, I have the links to like my podcast, or I have the links to the latest article I've written, so yeah, if you're interested in that. But today I wanted to get into a topic. I had gotten an email, and I'm a little embarrassed I'd gotten this email quite some time ago, but it's about technology. And some of the questions I get I can answer with a short little uh, email or something, and and respond to them. But this one I was really got me thinking and I wanted to set up how I think about it. And it just got really broad. And of course, then of course I never got to it. So here's the email. Hi, Farmer Sledge. I am a longtime listener of the podcast and have a question for you about the emergence of precision farming in the use of technology, data analytics, and farming. What are your thoughts on the large-scale implementation of technology in agriculture, whether it be using GPS monitoring and remote sensing to gauge soil health and improve crop yields, or using electronic tags on animals to monitor health and well-being? More specifically, do you see any way this type of technology could help on your own farm? Would you be open to using it if it were readily available to you, or are you philosophically opposed to it? So, great question, and of course, 
I have a very, very long answer. <laughs> and I want to, I, I think I've touched on this somewhat before, um, but it's very much related. How I understand technology is very much rooted in how I understand efficiency. And efficiency, I've, I've sort of dealt with this before in a couple of my other podcasts. And just to sort of a little review, a little refreshing here, I've talked about the efficiency of within very narrow parameters and the efficiency of broad whole systems. So talked about the efficiency of the single variable and that I contrasted crop and vegetable growing versus the type of rotational grazing and animal husbandry that we do. So for the vegetable growing that typically, you know, you, you are growing whatever it is, maybe you do a quarter acre of, of cut lettuce, you know, this is a smaller farm, you know, or, or you know, here, a half acre of tomatoes and, a, you know, whatever you, you set out an area, specific area, and that's what you're, you're growing a, a specific species, a specific plants that when you need to harvest tomatoes, you go out there and, and you, you, you're, they're right there and you harvest them and that can be scaled up till you get to the you know the huge farms where you might have 100 acres or something or if you're doing grain you know you might have 500 acres or I don't know they just can just keep scaling up and up and when you're in the flat midwest suddenly you're into areas of thousands of acres growing thousands of acres of you know typically corn or soybean right so these are scalable types of of things because you have you have sort of shrunk the parameters of what you're growing and you're just growing a, a single a single thing within an, a, a certain area whether that's the giant mega farms or even just a small vegetable you know you you divvy out areas and you make you make that one area where you're growing a specific type of vegetable or or whatnot and so that type of efficiency you you have in in within the vegetable growing there's a, a quite a fad now you hear all the time about lean farming and there's <clears throat> this whole movement of just getting super efficient cut out all the extra time you're doing this and and it makes sense within that that sort of context uh you you just get rid of all the waste and typically you you can you can get technology and try to figure out where you can get things to help you out and you scale this up 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 to the point where you're at these giant crop um or grain growers you know and they have these huge machines you've, you've grown all the corn it's all at the same height so you go in there with a machine that can just cut all the corn down and they can harvest the corn and you just this corn just comes flying out of these conveyor belts into these massive semi trucks just by the by the tons it's just huge massive amounts and so when you have that kind of efficiency you're always looking to get rid of waste you're always looking to to make things as linear as possible So this is in the same paradigm, right, as uh, a factory, same paradigm as an assembly line. And this is where the type of robotic technology become, you know, shines, right? If you have an assembly line where you've narrowed the parameters and all you have is just a very, you have one action that it has to do. You have to take this object from here or maybe a screw and you screw it in here or four screws, whatever you get, and robotic arm 
takes this piece and puts it here and just does this over and over and over. Well, that's all part of scaling up, right? And so you have this repetitive, very, very narrow parameters, very linear, specific, and you want to get all the waste out of it. And I contrast that to the efficiency we find in nature. When you look in nature, when you look at a certain, when you look close up, so to speak, at a resolution where you're looking at fine grain in a sense, it's chaotic and there's waste everywhere, right? And so when you're, when you've closed the parameters down, so to speak, and you've narrowed your focus and you look at nature you, from a me mechanistic point of view, you think, wow, this is really, really inefficient. And I talked about this before and is specifically one of the most uh, straightforward ways of this is, is what we actually call waste, right? What we, you know, the, the manure that comes out of animals. So we always talk about efficiency of an animal, of conversion of their food to, to weight gain, right? So it might be three to one or four to one or something like that. And so they have to eat three pounds of food to gain one pound of, of meat. And from a, from a mechanistic and a paradigm of efficiency, this like, wow, let's see if we can get this down, you know, and get less and less waste. And then of course we, we think of the actual manure as waste. And this is not at all um, nature's efficiency. So nature's efficiency has to be looked at from a different resolution, so to speak. You have to sort of back up and look at it from a bird's eye view and see the broader system. And when you look at that, suddenly you realize that all this uh, quote-unquote waste coming from animals are all about feedback loops that feed into each other. So if you feed a chicken um, some grain and some grass and they're out on the field and they drop their manure, that is an explosive input, one for all the microorganisms within the soil that then help the grass grow and um, then you becomes the input of another system. And then the grass can go into another animal and then that animal, it goes through their, their system and then there's all this sort of bacteria and microbes within their within their digestive system and it comes out and a lot of those bacteria ends up in the manure and then so this it's not just a input it's also i talked about this being communication pathways right so there's this conversation going on between the animals and the soil and the plants and and all the critters and all the microbial and and bacteria and worms and micro Rizzle, which I can never say right, <laughs> but all the the fungi, you know, inside the soil, and all this is is can, you know, having a conversation, so to speak, and so it's a very different, in a sense, we have a very different entry point of efficiency. And this very different point of entry translates into a very different approach of how someone like me doing rotational grazing looks at say our, our crop so if if i'm looking at the pasture as our crop which i look as the you know this massive solar panel that's pulling in the sun's energy i'm not looking at a resolution where i'm trying to figure out every individual species and trying to figure out what's best for that species and trying to put the appropriate minerals for this one and the appropriate amount of water for that one and have all this fine detailed data about individual species i'm looking at the pasture as a whole 
And if you look at the fundamentals and the principles of soil health, and and you, you have one of the things is to have a diversity of species, right? So they're you know the extension and the NRCS is encouraging vegetable and plant people to have a number of species that they're growing together and not have these massive monocrops. Well, when I look out into my pasture, right, I have I have some things that dominate like fescue and and orchard grass, but then there's like hundreds of other intermediary species, some that have crossbred, some of that their own thing, all kinds of different grasses, different forbs, different clovers, different, all, all kinds of different stuff. Some, you know, have a little bit deeper roots, you know, and some have, some are better for the hot times, some are better for the cold time. You know, I've, I've, I've done a whole podcast uh, talking about, you know, the pasture and, and all the different things it does. But the, the thing here is that when you look at the system as a whole, we don't have to, we don't enter it at a, at a resolution of really fine-tuned high data, right? So when I look at my pasture, let's say it happened to be a year where a certain type of grass or something didn't do well. And so maybe it got hit by a pest and maybe or maybe a disease or whatever it is, right? If that's a vegetable and that's my tomatoes and suddenly they get hit by blight or they get hit by something or some worms or whatever, I got to deal with that, right? And I got to figure out a very specific, a very specific answer to a specific problem, right? When I go out in my pasture and there happens to be a species that is suffering and maybe even dies out and gets hit really hard, well, nature, having not been wasteful, has this what we would call redundancy, right? So if you're in a lean, if you're in a mechanistic, if you're in an efficiency of the factory, you want to just have a single variable and you're just dealing with that. Well, what nature does when she's healthy is she has all kinds of species that are doing similar things, right? So if that one plant that suffered, there may be five other plants that could fill in that niche. And so when you're talking about the efficiency of nature, you're talking about a long term. You're talking about uh, things like redundancy and resilience. Redundancy enables to have resilience so that when one thing goes wrong, you don't have to spend all your energy and all your worrying about, let's fix this one problem. It just takes its natural sort of path and maybe that plant suffers just for that year. Maybe it eventually goes out, but there's going to be five other plants that can fill in the role it was playing and the communication pathways can continue. And this is why it's important that your soil not only has hundreds of species of plants on top, but thousands and millions and billions of all these animals and critters that are like microscopic, whether you're talking about bacteria and the fungi and the microbes, you know, in the soil, that too has to have this huge diversity. And part of that is for the redundancy, right? So you, when, when something suffers, there's five to 10, 20, whatever, however many, and, and some other things that come, come in and take its place. And this is, you know, this is very different. Here we are in the East, in the East Coast, and we have a lot of rain, and you know we're in, we're in an area in these rolling the, the you know these old mountains with these rolling hills, and pasture is just a, a great thing. Now, if you're in a more brittle environment, where you're either really cold or really dry or whatever, that it's not as resilient because it doesn't have the redundancy. It doesn't you know only a few plants are able to thrive in these really harsh environments. And so you actually are less resilient because you don't have waste, so to speak, right? So if you, this entry point of 
of when I look at efficiency on my pasture, I'm looking at it as the pasture as a whole. I don't look at the individual species. I may kind of say, oh, it'd be great if we could get some more, you know, you know, some, some more clover in here or maybe some more forbs, you know, very general uh, way of looking at it. But I'm going to then apply, if I want to change something, I can apply the pressure by using the animals. I want to enter into this communication pathways. I want to try to affect and... All animals are having an impact on the soil one way or another and I can control that because of a different kind of technology right so my technology that I use which is is not so much in the mechanistic of trying to um, efficiency but it's rather has a different focus right I could not do what I do without technology it's absolutely necessary for what I do and that's because I am trying to copy nature and I'm trying to basically take this massive ecosystem that was happening here before, right? Where they had 60 million bison roaming all of North America and they're peripatetic. They're, they're just migrating all the time and they eat the grass and they move on and they drop their maneuver and their hooves are impacting the ground and everything and they're moving on. And I am trying to make a microcosm of that on my on our farm here. And so what for us is, you know, invaluable is electricity that is pulsed through a net that has wire in order to become a barrier. So basically what I am doing is I'm, I'm setting boundaries and shrinking that ecosystem to try to imitate this mass, massive scale ecosystem that once was all over North America and in all over the, all over the world. Actually, this happens with ruminants, but here it happened to be mostly bison. But I'm trying to, to make that happen on a very tiny, small scale. And so I have to keep the animals controlled. And so what I have is these fences, right? So this is a very different type of technology. It's very flexible, right? I can put this netting however I want. People think I'm a little crazy because I don't have any permanent, permanent perimeter fence. What I do is I just have a big feed line and then one high tensile wire that goes around the perimeter of my pasture and that's just to get electricity to my nets. And then I just move these nets. And for my ruminants, I move it every day. I give them a little section every day, right? And I also control the back part of it so that they don't stay on that space too long and they don't eat any of the regrowth, right? So I'm doing this controlled grazing and I'm doing it, definitely doing it with technology, but it has a very different focus. And what I'm doing is not necessarily looking at a very minute, specific, single variable thing, but I look at the pasture as a whole, right? And it's very different from uh, a mechanized thing because when I go out there and decide, well, how much should I give them for the next day? Because I always set up the next day, a day beforehand, so that in the morning I can just open them up and they can get grazing right away. This is all these judgment calls, right? How much it makes a difference, how much it's been raining, what time of year, where are the animals are out in their gestation, you know, what are their nutrition needs, you know, where I am on the farm, like is this, you know, is this place 
have great grass or you know when was the last time they'd been on this area when when was another species there's all these different variables to to take into account and so i'm taking this whole system and oh yeah well i want to get them through here fast because i want to be able to get the chickens to follow them and i don't want the grass even too far down because i want the chickens to have plenty of of grass to eat all these different variables right so you're looking at it at it with systems and waste becomes almost like a non-existent it's not really high you don't even think about waste right you're, you're just constantly thinking about how the system and how things interact how things how feedback loops and synergistic and you know the output can become the input for the next one so there's a very different type of efficiency Before I really get to answering the question, I want to I want to reference um, someone who I've really enjoyed reading, and that's um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and he wrote *The Black Swan*, which I know probably a fair amount of you may at least be vaguely familiar with. But he has this sort of distinction between two different realities, so to speak. And though he has a very different, you know, purpose for writing what he does, I relate very well. And as I was read his stuff, I've always felt like I already had this sort of separation of two different kinds of efficiencies, two different kinds of, in a sense, worlds. And, and there's sort of a dichotomy of, of, of realities. And as he describes what he does, you know, he came from a, the financial realm and from Wall Street and and statistics and probabilities and everything. But as he separated and, and made a distinction between two very different realities, I, I, I really related to it. And though I have a different purpose for understanding these things, it made a lot of sense to me. And so I wanted to go into him a little bit because, you know, whether you've, if you've read him, it'll be, I think it'd be really helpful. If not, you might still be able to glean some of, of what I'm getting at. So, he writes that there's kind of two different realms of reality. And he, he says one is mediocristan and, and one is extremistan. So if you think about mediocristan, that's where things are relatively stable, relatively consistent, and we can tend to be able to map things out, tend to be able to understand them. Um, we understand the limits of what's going on. And then there's extremistan, which is susceptible and vulnerable to explosions in a sense of things just feedback loops just just growing and growing and growing without any real limitations and this is directly related to the efficiency in that if you look at the feedback loops of nature because there's so many involved because there's this redundancy, because there's this huge diversity of species, in a sense, the feedback loops that may be happening get sort of checked by each other. If one thing starts really exploding and, and growing and whatever, everything kind of shifts and you might have something that comes and starts, maybe a plant gets, you know, starts growing and really thriving. Well, then you might have some animals that really enjoy that, that plant. Maybe the, the microbial and bacteria composition within the rumen changes and suddenly the cows and the sheep are all eating this kind of plant. And, and things just kind of shift because there's these communication pathways.
extremist state is the opposite, where these feedback loops can start gaining momentum and just explode. And so within statistics, he uses the differentiation between he called Gaussian bell curves, where you sort of have an average, right? And this bell curve in the middle. And anytime, it's, the farther out you go from the average in the middle, of, of the graph, the, the least, less and less likely things are to, to happen and to, to be simply because there's, there's limits. So within that category, he'll say like the height of an average you know, adult human, right? So most of them are between five and six. And then, you, you know, the bell curve starts going down as you get, you know, under five or over six, you know, and then it gets down to pretty basically impossible once you like, okay, do you have a, a 11 foot person? You just, it just doesn't really exist. Or do you have, you know, the six inch person, you know, an, an adult human, you just, you know, if you look at a bell curve and you think about <clears throat> the structure of that, of that curve on either side, it just disappears into zero versus a fat tail or uh, basically it's a, a curve of an exponential, right? As you get from one side, as you increase to the right, so to speak, the, the graph just explodes higher and higher and higher, right? And this is exponential. And so this is the kind of thing <clears throat> that doesn't have limits. There's no sort of natural limits. There's no sort of biological limits, like, right? If we have a, a 12 foot person, you pretty much they have to have the neck of a giraffe and the heart of you know a giant elephant to be able to just pump the blood up into our brain, right? It just it doesn't work within biology. There are biological, there are physical limits, and obviously the opposite end of this tiny couple inch person, it just it doesn't happen. A full grown human being just doesn't. There's there's biological limits and restraints. But extremistan tends to be in areas that have been separated away from limits and really separated even from physicality. So time and space, distance, right, are, are really not limits anymore, right? So we're talking about in the age of internet, uh, I remember Talib um, used an illustration of like a musician, right? At one point in history, you know, you might have a region where you have musicians and they're one sort of rises above the others as the best one. And he is, you know, a popular musician in, in the city of whatever, in Venice or whatever. I don't know. So there are constraints, right? That person can only sing so many hours a day. He also can only be in one place at one, you know, at a time. And if he's going to travel, it takes a lot of time to travel somewhere else. So like if there's a, a neighboring town or city that wants to hear this famous singer, you know, he's got to get there and it takes time and it takes energy and there's all these physical biological strengths. So now we have internet and we have digital and whatnot. So anyone anywhere in the world can record just like I'm doing right now, but they could record some really good music and it's not constrained by time, right? I can just click this and they could be 3000 miles away. They could be on the opposite end of the globe. They could have made this funky music that I really enjoy. And I just download it on Spotify or stream it and boom, I've got it. And the consequence of what happens, right? That's extraordinarily efficient. But the consequence of what happens when you have that, when you don't have these constraints, is that you get the disparity of the 1% to the 
So musicians now, you know, if you do make it and you become popular, this becomes a feedback loop. So suddenly because you're popular, more people are listening to you. And because more people are listening to you, you become more popular, right? And there's this feedback loop that just winds itself. So you have this like tiny percentage, or probably less than 1% of these musicians who have like millions and billions of, of hits on their, on their music. While you have someone who's probably could be just as good or maybe just a slightly less good and they, you know, are struggling to get the gig at the bar uh, in their in their town. And so this disparity of this 99 to 1% becomes the norm because you have you have what they call fat tails. You have extremistan. You have you have feedback loops that just explode and they just, you know, like the microphone when you have that feedback loop and it just gets louder and louder and louder and there's nothing stopping it. There's no physical restraints. There's no time restraints, no space. There's no uh, labor. And suddenly you don't have these limits and you have these explosions. And that happens with, with social media and whatnot. What also becomes very interesting, and he writes a whole section, I remember there being a section on scalable versus non-scalable. And this is where it really um, sort of intersects with how I look at things, right? So if you, usually people say, oh, well, is your business scalable? And a non-scalable business is something that is restricted by all kinds of physical limits, right? So if you're a dentist, and you clean teeth, there's only so many hours a day that you can work, so many mouths and teeth that you could actually clean. Now, if you wanna to try to scale that up, so to speak, you gotta get other people in, you know, trained and you have to have you know, more chairs to do this and more instruments and more people and you know, more building and you, you can grow it, but there's all within this constraints of physical limits. Right versus scalable business, which is pretty much separated somewhat from reality, separated from the physical world. Now we're talking about internet and software and you know things that are sort of more analytical than anything else, and sort of live in this cloud, you know, this sort of artificial world. And remember, Talib came from Wall Street, right? Wall Street is the ultimate virtual world out there that has very just has sort of analytical analogical ties to reality for him he makes the point that the the scalability is that you pretty much takes the same amount of energy if you want to sell some shares or buy some shares right you could buy 50 shares but you could also buy with the exact same amount of energy pretty much is to buy 500 shares or 5,000 shares. So there's this like scalability that happens without any effort, right? Because there isn't these constraints because the virtual world is, is not constrained by time, by space, by labor, by even gravity, right? The physical laws are not applying here. And this is precisely the kind of systems that will inevitably set up the disparity. And here you're talking about disparity of wealth. That's why you have people in this tiny, tiny percentage, like one person can have the same amount of, of money and wealth 
as 10% of the population or something, right? These, in the world of extremistan, you have this, these feedback loops. So the richer just keep getting richer and the poorer get poorer because we have taken the constraints away. Suddenly we have a world where the feedback loops have no restraint and they have no limitations. And so you just get this feedback loops that are out of control. And so it's, it's not that these people necessarily, they're sure they were smart. They were, uh, they maybe even they worked hard, who knows, but they didn't, they aren't necessarily smarter or working harder than other people, but they just happened to be in the right place at the right time and, and made some lucky choices at the right, at the right moment. And the feedback loops just caught on and boom, suddenly they're flying. And then all the wealth just starts amassing into these tiny little areas and there's no checks. And mainly because it's, you know, it does, it's the efficiency of the single variable, right? It's the efficiency without constraints. This is the, the efficiency that has lost any ties to ecology. This is efficiency that has lost any ties to redundancy, to resilience. And so these systems, whenever we start depending more and more and make all our systems more and more efficient from the paradigm of mechanistic efficiency from not having waste, efficiency with having single variables and being able to streamline things to have this is part of what the massive, you know, supply and, and value chains across global world. Yeah, they're very efficient, but they are not resilient. And they will inevitably, they just cannot help but begin to accumulate into these feedback loops where the 1% is gaining all the benefits and the 99% are not. So let me bring this back to the farming. And I, and I think even within, within the two different worlds, there is some nuances as well, right? So when you have vegetable or crop farming, plants are still <laughs> susceptible to gravity and biology, biology and whatnot. But we try as much as we can, if you're growing thousands of acres of grain, you try to do as best as you can to conform the corn or conform your crop or whatever it is to be uniform. You have monocrops you, so that you can have technology, and this is physical technology, but you have these massive machines, right? The ones that are harvesting, the ones that are threshing, the ones that are sifting, you know, and you, you try to, as much as you can, you, you try to conform your nature and the physical things to be able to be consistent and regular and so that you can have these machines to do repetitive work, right? Because that's what the humans don't want to do. They don't want to do that repetitive work. And this is how it relates back again to scalability. So if you have these massive machines doing this repetitive work, it's not going to make sense to just do five acres of something, right? For these massive machines, in a sense, the more acreage you can use that machine for, the more efficient you are. So there's this pressure, even from the technology. Once you have this technology, you're going to try to to use as much as you can. So if you have this machine and you've already paid for it, the wisdom goes that you just, the more time you can actually be using this machine, the more you're getting out of it because it's not sitting there doing nothing. So instead of doing five acres, you're not 
paying more for another machine to do 500 acres and yes you have to put in the hours but there, you might as well go ahead and do 500 acres or maybe a thousand acres with this machine right so you can quickly scale it up and you don't have to right you don't have to read neil postman about technology to know that technology is not remotely neutral we know this we know when you get you know you know the old saying when you have a hammer everything looks like a nail it's the same thing it's as soon as you start going down this path and you have these machines well then you're gonna want to use these machines and you want to get your money you know you want to get your money's worth out of it and so you begin why not make more monoculture why not make more acreage because then it's going to become more efficient to use this massive huge machine that we've already you know you've paid a lot of money for this right and you've invested quite a lot into these big machines so of course we want to get bigger and, and bigger Now, all this mean, doesn't mean that I don't think there's a place for that kind of efficiency, even on our farm, right? I might not be using that kind of paradigm and when I'm looking at the pastures and trying to make decisions there, but for the, the other, like getting water to, to my animals, I want to have a system that's I'm not carrying buckets all day, right, to get feed to them. And as we, especially when we get to the point where we're no longer, we're taking the animals and we're going to kill them and actually turn them into packages to get to people, in a sense they become more virtual, then absolutely, right? Suddenly when we are processing, I like, I have these machines. I, you know, I use a, a, a scolder and it maintains this regular temperature. Uh, it, uh, it spins the birds and gets them in this warm water and, and then I put them from there into a plucker. And these things are really efficient. They, they do this kind of repetitive hard work that was, would just take so much time and be so labor consuming for a human to be doing. And so when I can and where it makes sense, of course we want to be lean. Of course we want to be efficient. You know, and then once we get that product and we're getting it packaged, of course I want to have systems of, of taking it to the market that makes sense and are efficient and, and getting it to the getting it to the consumer but that's just one piece among others right and then suddenly when you enter into technology that's even more removed you know as more virtual more removed from from physical reality the principle remains that you have this more pressure to to get bigger and so i think we just we have to figure out and we have to make sure what the hierarchy of, of what the system is and, and when to bring in this technology and just be very aware how it wants to just draw us into making things bigger and bigger. And so to be in a sense control your technology rather than not. In order to really to, to really make this connection um, between the, the software and analytics and all this virtual stuff and how it can apply to farming and how dangerous it can be, I, I want to take a little detour, which I think is um, instructive in, about middlemen. Obviously, agriculture and farmers have always had to have other businesses and other operations that support it. I mean, it's very hard for 
a farming operation to do everything from, okay, sure, they raise the animals or they raise the crops, but then you have to harvest them and you have to process them and then you have to distribute them. And some people, it's just way too much to be doing all that. You know, not everybody's vertically integrated. So you oftentimes have, you know, you have a butcher or you have uh, an aggregate or, you know, someone who's really good at sales and can go and talk to chefs and get them all interested in, in really good food, right? So you have these industries that are very symbiotic and then, you know, they, they interconnect and, and relate very well and support agriculture and whatnot. But there's a long, long history of people insinuating themselves as middlemen and instead of being subservient and, and, and supportive to, to the actual production of the food, they end up trying to take a huge piece of the pie, so to speak, and, in order, and start using their position as leverage in order to acquire more money and the farm ends up getting the raw deal and having to absorb their cost, right? So this has, you know, historically been true on all kinds of levels for a long time. But now that we have sort of software and this virtual type of stuff, it's become insidious. It's become even crazier. And it's just a sad fact. We, you know, it's been for a long time. We know that when you talk about cents to the dollar of how much the farmer actually makes on the food that actually finally gets to the consumer, it's pennies. It's pennies to the dollar. And it's ridiculous, right? And we have some cases where the, the people making the cardboard box or the packaging of the food is making more money than the, than the farmer who, who actually grew the food. This sort of, in a sense, middlemen, you know, these industries that were there to, to support the fundamental, the, the actual reality of the person who was growing the food have just grown and, and it's, it's nuts. Um, I remember listening to a lecture by Christine Jones and I think, I think she comes from Australia. So I think her actually, her numbers were from Australia, but it was very relevant to hear. She talks about the money that's in the agricultural industry has just grown and grown and grown to like vast numbers of, of dollars of revenue. But when you look at actually, when you separate from the actual farmer, the actual producer, to all the industries that surround it, supposedly, you know, selling them the inputs, selling them the fertilizers, selling them the uh, all the equipment, selling them the, whether it's a tractor or irrigation system or the seeds or, or the fertilizer or the pesticides or the herbicides or, you know, all these things, or to be able to sell these things and the systems there, they're, they, they're making over 90% of the money. So this huge rise in, in money and revenue in the agricultural section on this graph was really, it was really poignant to see how the pretty much the revenue for the farmers stayed relatively the same. And this huge supposedly supporting system was making, you know, that 98, 99% of the money. And this becomes more and more true as we become more and more dependent on technology. And we, ha you know, we can now ship things from wherever. I, I get really frustrated. I listen to a lot of nutritional podcasts and whatnot. And, you know, and I like some of these guys who are arguing for the, you know, the importance and the nutrient density of animal foods and ruminants and how important it is and how animal saturated fats are essential and all this. 
and then they go, well, I'm gonna, now I'm gonna have a supplement uh, company and I'm gonna get you the best grass-fed beef. And so we're gonna make supplements from New Zealand grass and 100% grass-fed beef. And I'm gonna make supplements for you and I'm gonna sell it to you all over the States. Like from 3,000 miles away. And I, it's, it's just very difficult for me to, 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 you know, to be tacking along and tracking along and they get the environmental aspect and they get this and they get that. And then all of a sudden they want to have this business that's scalable and they're getting something that's so devoid of reality in terms of distance and space, right? That, and in this crazy world, it's cheap to get stuff Maybe he's even having it manufactured in China. I don't know, right? But this is the world we live in. It can be grown somewhere and it can be, you know, packaged somewhere else and then it can be sold all over the world. And we've, we've taken that, that distance and that space and that restraint away. And so, you know, rather than emphasizing that local. But I was getting into middlemen here and I remember there was an article that um, my son-in-law sent me. Actually, it was an NPR piece, but I, I read it instead of listening to it. But I remember there was a company that was working with farmers, and they were doing real deep analytic data analytics about their their soil and their use of you know trying to mitigate their use of pesticides and herbicides and just use only the amount of fertilizer that they they need right and all this mitigation efforts so that they could be so there could be no waste and sure within that system that makes sense but then this company that was doing all these data analytics had joined with another company called tillage and this tillage was basically trying to be an Airbnb for, for farmers, I guess. The, so these farms in the Midwest that are cultivating thousands and thousands of acres, they don't own all their land. A lot of them, I think they said something like 70% or something of that land being cultivated was, was actually leased. And a lot of these farmers have had these deals with these landowners, maybe even for generations, you know, for decades at least. And well, Tillage then goes and finds these landowners and says, hey, you're paying this much to, to lease your land out and rent it out. Hey, how about we jack that up 10% and we'll lease it from you and then we'll take care of all these, you know, all the logistics of leasing it to the farmers. It's a win-win, right? So then the farmers come to lease their land, come to rent their land and uh, they find out the landlord is like, well, sorry, you're going to have to lease it, well, sublease it from these other guys already bought it. And then when they talk to Tillage, they're like, okay, well, you have at this price, and now maybe it's 15% higher so that the, you know, that they can get some money. And all in the name of providing a service. And if that wasn't bad enough, the, the farmers were pretty sure that they had gotten the data of who these landlords were and who was leasing from them from they had basically gotten it from the company that had been doing the data analytics for them. Maybe they had bought the data. Maybe it was part of the deal of the merge to acquire this data. I don't know. The details are not 
that important. But the whole point is to show how this company just came in, had some, uh, you know, knowledge and, and from, from the data analysis and analytics, and were able to go in there and insinuate themselves and just sort of push in and create space, push the farmer on down the line, made him absorb the costs, and suddenly they have a business where they're just taking the cream off the top where there had been no need for them before they created this whole whole need and they leveraged that position now that they had bought this land or they had rented this land at a higher price. So not everything's quite so extreme as that and so obvious, um, but so maybe a, a story of our own I think is quite relevant. It's a little more nuanced. So at the beginning of COVID happening, and uh, I think it was around March or somewhere, I can't remember, but um, you know, the state government was like, hey, we need to shut down all non-essential businesses. And within that definition, you know, the 7-Eleven that's selling a little bit of milk here and there, they're essential, but the farmer's market um, was not, even though farmer's market is <laughs> vast vast majority is selling food and we're outside and it's healthy food la 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 but as as frustrating as it was there was quite an outcry and i think a lot of the customers and a lot of the farmers made it a stink to governor and, and whatnot and uh, many of you might be the listeners uh that are listening to this podcast so thank you if it was you because in the end um, we were able to open market. But at a time there, we was really unsure. We thought market was probably not going to open. And most people were starting to get a virtual uh, a virtual store up and an online store. And we were going to start selling their stuff online. And we thought we'd have to do that since it, well, big, you know, part of our revenue is going to market. And we were going to have to make up some of those sales. And many of the farms around us, we heard, were working with this this company called Barn to Door. And they were basically a software and a platform that they would set up the store for you and help you um, set it up. And then uh, people could just buy with a credit card online and you would just either do drop off or ship or whatever you wanted, but it was to help facilitate an online store. Of course, now we do use some software in our business. We use QuickBooks for our to do all our you know accounting and stuff and that's a great for our purposes it's a great data analytics in a sense we separate all the different animals and classes of you know whether it's uh, pork or sheep or, or chicken or you know or we even separate you know by the holes and halves versus by the cut and that kind of thing we have all this we can we can put it in quickbooks and we can know how our operations are doing right so one of the things for that, you know, that is a type of technology that makes a lot of sense for me. I don't really want to be wasting uh, a lot of my time just putting in numbers, putting in data when something like, uh, when something integrates well. Like, so Square, we work, use Square to sell a lot of our stuff and it integrates really well within QuickBooks and all that data just goes and goes into QuickBooks and I don't have to do that data entry, data entry. So one of the big questions when I was doing Bartador, are you compatible with QuickBooks? And of course they were like, yeah, yeah, we are. And it turned out they weren't so uh, compatible with QuickBooks. They weren't very integrated at all. And, and to their credit, I think they're, they're working on that and trying to make that better. But that really, so in the end, we, we started backpedaling and we ended up getting out of it. And that was a huge part of it, but that wasn't the only part I was going to be spending all this time trying to tweak the data to make it fit into our system in QuickBooks. 
But in the end too as well, here was uh, a service being provided to us. And these people are based in California, right? They're, they're online, it's the internet, they don't have to be local. And it was something scalable. So it was trying to like merge this business that was scalable with a business like ours, which really isn't, which in, in the terms of Taleb, are, it's not scalable. At least it's not scalable except within the limits, you know, of biological and physical limits. So in the end, you know, they were wanting to, there was a charge to set it up. It makes sense. You know, they, put, they have to put labor in to set this platform up and get all your you know, product in there and whatnot, but then they were going to want a, a monthly fee to help us, you know, keep it, keep it up and running. And this was, it was somewhere around a hundred dollars. I think there were different tiers, but let's just say it was about a hundred dollars, right? Uh, a month, which to me seems kind of steep, but I don't know, regardless, I mean, I don't know how to code. So regardless, it doesn't actually matter because it's not tied to locality either. So it, it, let's just say it was reasonable, but it's reasonable for them being in California, which we know some places in California, the cost of living is absolutely ridiculous. So there's this mismatch simply of locality of them trying to make a living off of us from our money here, where we're in a place where we, the cost of living isn't remotely that high, but they can do it because they are not constrained by time and distance. And they, you know, they're on the internet and all this work could be done and they would just scale it up. And hopefully from their point of view, they would just get more and more farms until they had maybe 500 farms or more, all paying them $100 a month. And then suddenly you have a very, a, a business. But the whole point is to say that, yes, they seem to be providing a service and we were kind of caught up at the moment and everyone's doing it and we need to do this but to take a step back and to really be like okay is this service really helping us is it even compatible i had even questions like let's say we get dependent on this internet platform and then suddenly we are doing all these sales and then are we going to have to start doing all the shipping which i don't like we never have done shipping. We kind of just because of our stress on, on local and trying to keep <laughs> constraints on things, we don't want to go into there, but we would be kind of being forced into there. And then what, say we became dependent on this and then suddenly they decided that, oh, cost of living in California gone up. So now we need to not charge a hundred, but we need to charge $200 a month. And suddenly we would have to be expanding ours, our area and who we sell to. And then suddenly why wouldn't we sell to someone who's just gets on, you know, from three states away and clicks on a button and says, I would like this, and then we just sell it. So there would have been this drive and this pressure from the technology itself to make us change. And so I think technology, this is all to come back and answer that question at the beginning, is that I, I always advocate be very, very wary of technology and particularly technology that is virtual. So would I ever use data analytics? Well, I could see myself having, so obviously I do in a sense with QuickBooks, that is a type, but the question on the email had to do with soil your, and your, your crops and whatnot. And that would just doesn't seem to have much bearing on that sort of that that resolution of the granular resolution of really looking at fine-tuned things what i could see maybe is if i do want to take sort of a 
a, a sense of the soil, I think a proxy and a sense of the whole general health of the system would be taking a, a, a measurement of the carbon within the soil. I think carbon within the soil gives you a lot of information, just broad information of how healthy things are. And then you could get a sense of, of also how much water is being retained, what kind of drainage, what kind of what kind of organic material you have in there, which is the carbon that can hold the water, and then how alive is the whole soil, how, you know, maybe get a count on how many millions of bacteria, microbes, and worms, and whatever all that. So, I, I never want to be like, absolutely not, I just, my answer to such a question was be, wow, I don't really see that kind of technology being needed on our farm. There could be places and uses for this kind of thing, and but you have to be careful. And I would have um, very, very strong, <clears throat> maybe resistance or very strong parameters, which I wanted to keep that technology in, so that that technology doesn't suddenly become actually the driving, the motor, and, you know, start becoming a huge part of how we're making our decisions, because this technology always, always starts going towards the large, the scalable, the, you know, tries to get out of the constraints of the physical. And I think this is something that I think Wendell Berry has been talking about for a long time, but I don't, I almost feel like he needs a translator. <laughs> I feel like people aren't really getting really the essence of what Wendell Berry, Wendell Berry talks a lot about how local is important and restraint. He talks about how restraint is probably the most essential virtue at this time of civilization. And I, I would put it in this context, right? So I remember I read a interview, someone went and interviewed him Right, he's pretty much, I think he's in his 80s, and he's gone back to Kentucky, and he just kind of lives on his, on his farm there, and he writes and you know does a little bit of farming, and he just, he's all about the local. And so she came and asked him about one of his famous, one of his most famous um, statements that Michael Pollan made famous was that eating is an agricultural act. And she asked him, well, what do you think about that? And he says, I wish I hadn't even said it. And it kind of took the interviewer by surprise. And she was like, well, well why? It's, it's gotten everybody thinking about sustainability and about regenerative agriculture and how important food is to the whole you know, ecology and everything. And he says, it's all meaningless unless you have locality involved. It's all meaningless unless it is rooted to a place, a sense of place. And I think what he's getting at is very similar stuff that Talib kind of draws attention to, is that suddenly and you see it right people want to greenwash every business and they want to be sustainable i mentioned the people doing supplements before and they want to have you know they're they're all about regenerative agriculture but suddenly they're talking about regenerative agriculture in new zealand that we're getting supplements from the beef there from the 100 percent grass-fed beef in new zealand and bringing it here and i think wendell berry is saying no no, locality is an essential piece, if not maybe the most most essential piece, in terms of keeping us rooted and keeping us rooted in the systems and the proper scale. So if we want to have a sense of what is an appropriate amount of food being grown in a, an appropriate in a certain region, the software is not going to tell us. Software is going to just push us on to extract more and more and more. And that puts us in this 
in this efficiency and this technology of extraction, this efficiency that's always going to want more and always become more and more efficient in the linear sense. Whereas I think Barry is saying is that if we want to maintain resilience, if we want to maintain the sense of efficiency in terms of what nature does and in the long run and not be using up all our resources, not be thinking of soil as a resource to extract, but actually be improving the soil as we go and make things regenerative, then locality has to remain essential because locality is what brings us back to time and space. So if there's anything I would say about technology is that, yes, we have to live in this world and it's just, it is the reality and it's here, but it's up to us to, to remain vigilant and it's up to us to say, no, okay, we're going to use these tools and they are powerful tools, but we always have to remember that the tools themselves are going to have this draw and this push and this pull to make us want to to grow and extract and to and to have a system basically have a feedback loop that doesn't have constraints and so our job which is difficult very difficult in this you know in our culture and civilization today is to provide the restraint it's up to us to to realize where the constraints have to be, where the limits have to be, and to have to be wise. And in order to know where those, we have to really know the land. We have to really know the environment. We have to really know whether we are actually improving the land that we're on, if we're actually using the animals appropriately so that we're making the land better. And then that way we can be part of the abundance. We can be a part of the regeneration and access nature that way rather than just extracting and abusing her. But if I could end by insisting that this is not just applicable to just farms or people that are dealing with environment or ecology, but that this is about the systems that govern our civilization, our global world. And I know a lot of people um, that are very concerned about the disparity of wealth. They're very concerned about these systems that, um, or just the fact that, you know, such a few people of the population are so wealthy and these systems that keep making the rich richer and the poor poorer in, in all sorts of different ways. But what gets me is that so many of the same people think that the answer is going to lie in the technology. And that if we could just rearrange the technology or just use this to analyze this or just use social media to uh, get people together to do this, that we could fix the problem that way. But it's important, I think, for people to understand that the systems, if you basically a system that has feedback loops that aren't grounded, feedback loops that don't have constraints, that don't have limitations in the real world, in the physical world, then these are basically feedback loops that can explode. They can they are in the world of extremistan and eventually Eventually, there will be an explosion at some point. There will be a black swan, and these things will create a system that become extraordinarily unfair. 
And that's just part of the way the system is. And so in, in order to try to address these issues, we, we tend to, to put all the blame on uh, greedy people, so greed, or all the blame on you know, corporations or whatnot, but which can be very true, that's all true, that greed though has always been there. But we need to see that it is the systems that we use and it's the technologies that we use that we just we give ourselves to and allow for this disparity because we have given up the constraints. We no longer have restraint and limits. If we are to really going to address disparity of wealth and disparity of popularity or disparity of the few that get the breaks and the rest who have to just live with the crumbs, then it's actually things like technology. It's actually the, the things that are moving our society so fast and disrupting everything. These are actually systems that always gravitate to eventually to fat tails. They, they always eventually gravitate to uh, a feedback loop that ends up narrowing its focus on a, uh, a very small minority to really, and it, that explodes at the expense of the other. And so if we are to address some of these problems that we care about and environment being on top of the list, we are going to have to rearrange our position. We're going to have to sort of renegotiate our relationship to technology. And hopefully I've given a little insight on how I think we should be doing that. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.